This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another exciting episode of literary treks i'm just one of your hosts bruce gibson and with me like he is on every episode of literary treks here on the trek fm network please welcome put your hands together for dan gunther hey how's it going today bruce it's going great i'm so excited as i Always am on the show. I swear. I must say I'm excited every time because seriously, I am. I, you know, we have Section 31 Control that recently came out, written by David Mack, and he's going to be on the show here later. And I think there's so much to go through in this book. And if if anybody hasn't read it, read it before you listen to the show. And if you don't think you're ever going to read because you just don't have time, then listen to the show because there's a lot of good stuff that's going to come up. I just know it. Definitely. Get yourself a copy of this book, put tape over all the cameras and microphones you can find and ensconce yourself in a Faraday cage because by the time you're done reading this book, you will be scared to death of the surveillance state. So, uh, oh man, uh, I yeah, this book... I, I don't know what else I can say about it. It just, it blew my mind and uh, I... I think our discussion is going to be pretty great. Well, let's go ahead and get into the news before we get into that fabulous discussion. So the first thing is George Takei is partnering with IDW, the IDW that does the Star Trek comics. They're doing a graphic novel with his guidance that's reexamining the Japanese-American internment camps during World War II that George Takei's family went through with firsthand experience. And so he's going to help guide them through the writing of this. And I think this is really great because the first time I heard George Takei was working with IDW, I thought, oh, he's writing like a Captain Sulu book. But this has nothing to do with Star Trek. This is really almost like a biography of his childhood. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, a topic that's, of course, very dear to him and very important because, as you said, he, he and his family went through this. He was very young when... His family was interned at an internment camp uh, during World War II for Japanese Americans. You know, because of the bombing of War of Pearl Harbor, it set off kind of a national paranoia, and he really, he and his family really were victims of what happened at that time. And if you've ever heard him speak on this topic, it's incredibly moving, and I'm really looking forward to 
his getting this story out in comic form. I'm really excited to see this. Yeah, it's coming out sometime in 2018. We don't have a date yet. So this is geared up for next year. So when we get more information, we will, of course, let you know. And I don't know, maybe we'll even briefly review it uh, when it comes out, just because it has a Star Trek connection because of George. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good idea. We should we should put that on the schedule for sure when we learn when it's coming out. Yeah. So speaking of comics coming out, we recently had Boldly Go number six that came out just a couple of weeks ago, and we saved it for this episode to review. So I'm going to open up my copy right now and take a look inside. I've already read it. And I have to say that uh, as soon as I opened up to the first page of the comic, the artwork's different than it we've seen in the previous issues. Yeah, definitely. So this this is a big departure from the style that we've gotten used to. Uh, so this one, the art was done by Chris Mooneyham. So this is kind of a new style that we're seeing here. And to me, it felt very kind of newspaper comic-ish almost, you know, a little bit rougher, not not in a bad way, but like a little bit more stylized version of the characters and the surroundings and that sort of thing. It felt very pulp newspaper comic to me, a very hand-drawn feel to it. Uh, I don't know. What did you think of the artwork? I, I, I thought it was interesting. It's It's not my favorite style of artwork, but I feel like once I got used to it, it really kind of worked for this story. Yeah, I got used to it too. At first, it, it was a little jarring because I wasn't used to seeing it based on the other comics that we've seen. Uh, it does have that newspapery type of thing that you were just saying. And the likenesses to the actors isn't spot on, but I don't think that's what the artist is going for is a total likeness. But I mean, you definitely see the similarities there, but I really enjoyed it. I, I like this artwork because uh, it's, it's different and it changes some things up and it kind of gives it a different feel, a different tone to the, to the comic. Uh, so I, I like getting different versions of art in the Star Trek universe. It helps just to expand the creative juices that go into storytelling mm -hmm. yeah it definitely gives us some really interesting angles and different kind of dynamic shots which i thought were really interesting as well so getting into the story we see them kind of exploring what they're calling a white hole so this is apparently the opposite of a black hole and it's you know pushing against them i guess instead of drawing them in gravitationally um, yeah, I don't know. But before that, I should say we do get Sulu being invited to join Kirk and the Endeavor as the first officer, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I I have some things I want to mention about that. And I just kind of want to throw those out to you. So Sulu is is starshipless as opposed to homeless. That's that's my new term, starshipless. <laughs> Uh, because of the events we had in issues one through four of Boldly Go, where they were confronted with the Borg. And Sulu was the first officer on the Concord with um, Captain Terrell, mm -hmm. th that you might remember from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So anyway, uh, that ship is out of commission, and Sulu is now looking for a different ship to serve on. Since the Enterprise, of course, we know what happened in Star Trek Beyond, that 
Enterprise isn't available. It was destroyed, so they're building a new one. So while it's under construction, everybody's moved on to different things. So Sulu is telling Kirk that he has found another ship to serve as a first officer on. And Kirk says, nope, nope. I stepped in. I put a halt to that. I want you to be my first officer here on the Endeavor. And Sulu's like, well, okay, sure. Yeah, uh, I would be honored. Now, he's a temporary first officer because the original first officer is on Romulus right now. Mm -hmm. And Kirk's even hoping to get her back. And I'm thinking, well, was Sulu going to be a permanent first officer on the other starship? And now Kirk has brought him on to his command temporarily. I mean, what happens when Kirk's original first officer comes back from Romulus? Is Sulu like out of a job? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I kind of wondered about this because... Sulu seems a little bit reluctant. I might be reading into that, but he seems a little bit... No, I thought that too. Yeah. And I I kind of had to remind myself, okay, this is Sulu and Kirk. This isn't George Takei and William Shatner. So there isn't that personal (laughs) animosity there. But yeah, he he definitely feels like he's a little bit put off, maybe a little bit reluctant to take the job, but he's like, well, okay, the captain's telling me what to do. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure, totally. But yeah, like... That's a really good question. Is he permanently going to be the first officer here? Or, you know, what's the deal, Kirk? What's going on there? Unless the other offer Sulu got was also a temporary first officer position. And so, well, and I mean, you know, technically until the new enterprise gets built, they're all kind of temporary, I suppose. So maybe that. Well, and that's my next question. So if Sulu is serving as a first officer, on one ship, and then now he's had a chance to go to another ship as first officer, but Kirk has made him the first officer on this Endeavor ship. Okay, so he's definitely definitely in first officer position. Now the Enterprise A will come up at some point, and Kirk and crew will go back to it. Is Sulu going to go back? Because we know Spock's going to be there as first officer. Mm-hmm. Or is Sulu just, you know going to go off and do something else is he going to take you know a demotion and not be a first officer anymore like i'm just curious to know how that's all going to play out yeah and i mean i i would like to think he would get a choice and probably because it's star trek would want to go to the enterprise and be a helmsman i guess and i mean maybe you know there's the prestige of the enterprise it's it's you know, even though in the original series it wasn't called the flagship, they did call it the flagship in the 2009 Star Trek movie. So, you know, maybe there's kind of a prestige level of just being on the Enterprise. Kind of like Riker not taking a command because he really liked being first officer of the Enterprise, I guess. Or if anybody ends up being a first officer with Captain Terrell, you always come back to the Enterprise. Like, yeah, there check you off. Go. <laughs> Yeah, it's the curse of Terrell. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, going back to what you were saying about the white hole that they're dealing with. I, I don't ever recall us dealing with a white hole before in Star Trek. No, I'm I'm pretty sure this is uh, not something that's been talked about before. We don't lear- learn a whole lot about it, except for we find two crew men on here that are insistent that this thing is dangerous and we need to get away from it and the enterprise is trying to you know send a probe into it and this endorian officer she just goes basically insane and, and takes over um the controls and engineering 
to prevent the Enterprise from sending the probe, but they eventually do get it out. But, you know, they throw her in the brig and find out, you know, why is the Sandorian trying to do this? She's a crew member on the ship. Why, why, why prevent this from happening? Mm-hmm. And then there's this what, big white entity that kind of comes onto the bridge where everyone's like, holy crap, what the heck? And Kirk's like, red alert, all stations report. And then things start to get a little crazy. And then there's another crewman that comes and he shoots one of the security officers to get the Andorian out of the brig. It's What did you think at this point that was going on? It was kind of all over the place, you know, a little bit confusing as to what's going on. But I think, like, as we find out by the end, that's kind of by design. Like, this is a problem that's clearly above the heads of the crew of the Enterprise. And we find out that these two crew members are, you know, I guess more advanced than, you know, the Federation people. And they're kind of trying to save us or trying to save Kirk and his crew, which I thought was, I don't know, like at this point in the story, I was really confused, but by the time it gets all wrapped up, I'm really digging this story. I'm really enjoying what it's saying. And plus it gives McCoy the opportunity to verb the term prime directive, (laughs) which is kind of cool. So they essentially get prime directed according to McCoy. That's true. Yes. That was a good line. I like that. So yeah, these these two entities they're explorers just like our crew is and they're all into non-interference but as they are hiding on the enterprise's crewmen and learning about us they were they're trying to save us from this white hole and of course now they have to expose their themselves to the crew and show them that you know hey we're not who we said we were and whatever and i won't go too much in the details if anybody hasn't read this and they want to see how the whole story plays out and concludes but uh there is a uh the last page is quite interesting too dealing with the uh first officer from the endeavor uh mm-hmm. who is on romulus and it's a to be continued so we'll have to see in issue number seven uh, how this plays out. But so far, you know, I, I was really expecting this to deal more with the Borg. Uh, mm-hmm. The events of this take place due to the after effects of the Borg. So I was kind of pleased to see that it wasn't just jumping back into the Borg. But again, they mentioned that, you know, oh, yeah, the Borg is going to be coming back, you know. And so we shall see in future issues how that all plays out. Yeah, I kind of liked the format of this issue. So it's basically a one-off story, I assume. But there are these threads running through that link back to previous stories. And then, of course, the epilogue, which will kind of carry forward into stories to come. So it's kind of a neat way to do it, kind of striking a balance between a single-issue story and but still these threads that weave through the whole of the series. And, you know, Jayla was in the last issue. Mm-hmm. In issue number five, and Jayla is not in this story. Now, the right. standalone that she was in was a backstory on Jayla, and I was hoping we'd see her with issue number six, this issue, but of course, she's at Starfleet Academy, so I guess there isn't going to be much interaction, but then we see a preview of a cover at the end of this issue for number seven that has Jayla in the background behind Kirk and Spock. So maybe we will be seeing her soon. Mm-hmm. It certainly looks that way. And yeah, I'm really ex- uh, one of my favorite characters 
who's not, you know, part of the main cast. I really like JLo. Looking forward to seeing her again for sure. Me too. Well, listen, we've got an email from one of our listeners. This is Jeff in Kansas City. And so Jeff decided to write in and also send us some barbecue from Kansas City because they got awesome barbecue there. No, he didn't send us barbecue. I'm kidding. I was going to say, anyway. you're holding out on me. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm licking my fingers. Mm, that was good barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> no, but anyway, so Jeff's email says, hey, guys, I really appreciate your work on the podcast. Lately, I've especially been enjoying your comics segment, which we just did. Ooh. Waypoint 4 definitely struck me as a little odd, but I suppose that is the beauty of the comics medium. They can push the limits of Trek. Anyway, when reading the slightly disappointing Enterprise story, I notice a mistake. The date for the Archer story is listed as 2020. If this is actually Archer and not an ancestor, then the date should be closer to 2120, right? So instead of 2020, it should have been 2120. Enterprise takes place in the 2050s, I believe. Just curious if you all saw it as well. Thanks, Jeff and KC. And you are so right, Jeff, because yeah. Enterprise does play, take place in the 2150s. And, of course, the novels we've had since then, the 2160s. So, yes, Archer was born in 2112. So 2120 would make him eight years old, and that's about the age of the character in this comic so when i didn't notice the 2020 when i read it i think in my mind i was thinking 2121 when i saw it mm -hmm. but uh it's the very first panel when johnny archer is making his log or his journal and the date is 2020 and as i look through the comic today I thought, well, maybe he is an ancestor. Maybe we're perceiving this all wrong. <laughs> and when you see Johnny Archer in his room, there's nothing in that room that couldn't be in this decade that we're living in now. I mean, there's nothing that said, oh, yeah, you can tell, the, you know, this is the future. The house, the environment he was in outside, everything could have taken place in the 21st century until you get to the last page of that comic and Jonathan Archer is talking about how Daniels told him that someone went back in time to save his life, mm -hmm. his own life. So it definitely is our Captain Jonathan Archer, and the date is incorrect. It should have said 2120. So good catch, Jeff. Well, actually, and this is a little known fact, uh, Jonathan Archer was in fact around 140 years old uh, when Enterprise premiered in 2151. It's it's a little known fact, but he just no no no. You you eat right. You take care of yourself. You know you 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 do these things. You're you're gonna look that good, and you're gonna be that young. But I I mean I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's what the writer of the comic was going for. I sure <laughs> sure yes. By by 2020, humans live to be 140 and beyond. <laughs> well, that one did. That one did. That one did. He's actually not Jonathan Archer. He's a time traveler by the name of Dr. Sam Beckett. And he's actually leaping from life to life. And that accounts for the, I don't know. I got nothing. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's a total, total mistake. Very good catch. I do have to say I missed this one completely as well, reading the story the first time. So awesome. Thank you very much, Jeff. Really good catch. That that's great attention to detail. 
you know, humans, we all make mistakes and especially, you know, kids can make mistakes and, you know, it would make sense. Maybe an eight year old was making a journal and put 2020 accidentally instead of 2120. Who knows? I frequently think that the year is 1917. I, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but yeah, no, I do that. Do all you the do time. that? <laughs> no, <laughs> oh. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> It oh. would surprise me, Dan. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that says about me. Oh. <laughs> awesome. Well, anyway, so let's move on to our feature. But before we do that, we would love to hear from you guys, just like we heard from Jeff. Love emails. Love reviews on iTunes. We just like to hear from everybody. So please contact us. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. You can send us a voicemail through the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpike.com slash trekfm. You can find us on Twitter at trekfm. You can go to Facebook to facebook.com slash trekfm. Join the Babel Conference by doing the search engine, just putting the Babel Conference in there and joining our Facebook group. And you can go to Goodreads. And there... If you join Literary Treks and we'll approve you and we'll get you in, you can see what books we have coming up so you can start reading ahead. So when episodes come out, you can say, yeah, I just read that book. Now I get to hear what they are going to say about it or maybe an author is going to be on. And we're going to have guests from Trek FM, Trek FM coming onto the show talking about books. So please join us on that. And of course, always go to iTunes and give us reviews and it helps people find us. So. Why waste any more time? Let's jump right into the feature and talk about Section 31, Control, with author David Mack. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, on today's show, we have a special guest with us, David Mack, the author of Star Trek Section 31, Control. And this is the follow-up book to his last Section 31 book, Disavowed. Which is amazing to me because that book came out in October of 2014. I can't believe it's been that long. It didn't seem that long ago to me. I had to check that date several times because I thought, wasn't it just like a year or a year and a half ago? But it's been a few years. But for those who don't know, David has written many Star Trek books. Things from the Vanguard series and the Destiny trilogy, the Typhon Pack. He wrote one book in there and a book in the fall. Seekers. He his most recent Star Trek book was the second book in the Legacies series that we had uh, part of last year. So I'd like to welcome to the show David Mack. Thank you. Glad to be here. Welcome to the show, David. Always happy to have you on. Always a pleasure to be here. Yes, even after reading this book, we still are happy to have you here. <laughs> That's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine uh, some folks might not be that thrilled to talk to me after reading the book. Interesting. Well, we're going to get to that later. So let's go ahead and jump into this book. But let's let's just kind of explore the very beginning, the process of this. So you finished writing Disavowed. I listened to the episode of Leary Treks that you were on with Chris and Matt. And at the time, you even said, I got to find a way to work in Garrick into the next book, which yes. you did in this one. <laughs> so how did you start off with the story idea for this one? The drafting of the story idea for Control began, I guess, in January. Was it January last year? I guess it was January of 2016. I drafted the outline very quickly 
And as readers might be able to tell, I was in a very dark frame of mind when I did so. Um, I was kind of ticked off about some recent events in my life, and I just poured all of that angst into the story. Part of what led me to work on it at this time, I had been expecting to work on my original stuff for tour, but there were delays in that process. And so to keep the bills paid, I had to go back to Trek. And fortunately, they had worked for me. And so I scored this two-book contract, one of which was Control, and the other was a Titan novel, which is coming out at the end of this year. So I started drafting the story outline, and I had a pretty good idea right from the end of Disavowed what I wanted to do in Control. And if you've got a copy of Disavowed and you look at the back of it, you can see I had even settled on the title already. Julian Bashir will return in Section 31 Control. So I, I had the notion in my head right from the very beginning, all the way back in 2014. So I just started gaming it out, and I started asking myself, what if questions, how does it come out? And I hit upon the notion of this two-part parallel story, with one part being the creation, the inception of the entity that becomes Control, and then the other story taking place about two centuries later being the toppling uh, of Control. So... I just basically played those two storylines off each other and tried to find parallels in them. And uh, the net result was something that was very heavily inspired by Person of Interest, which was one of my favorite TV shows of the last several years, which was all about the rise of artificial superintelligence and the threats that that presents to safety, to personal liberty, to security, to privacy. And astute readers will probably also notice nods within control to such uh, entertainment franchises as Terminator and uh, probably also Captain America, the Winter Soldier. That was pretty much where that all came about, was just this mishmash of inspirations and ideas. And it all essentially sprang from the idea of control being an artificial superintelligence. So when did that idea kind of uh, present itself? Was that back during Disavowed, did you already have this idea of control being this artificial superintelligence, or did that kind of come about later? It occurred to me while I was writing Disavowed, but I could not find a way to work in that revelation into Disavowed. I couldn't find a way to do it that felt germane and worthwhile. It seemed like the sort of thing that merited a whole book unto itself. And the reason I chose to call the entity control is that control is a term with a long pedigree in intelligence work. Control tends to be the nickname or operating code name given to whoever is in control of an intelligence organization or a division of that organization. So that was how I settled on the name. And then for some reason, everybody decided to make jokes about get smart to the point <laughs> where I wanted to throttle half the internet. Yeah, I definitely saw a few of those jokes on uh, on Facebook and yeah, it, it gets a little like the first time is funny, but yeah, it gets a little tiresome after a while for sure. A little bit, a little bit. Hey, so when's section 31 chaos? And I'm like, are you kidding me with this? Really? Do you know nothing about intelligence uh, jargon? Apparently not. <laughs> so we're not going to see Bashir with a phone shoe? Probably not. <laughs> Dan's shaking his head. He's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> as far as working in Garak, I mean, that was one of those things where I think somebody must have suggested it to me either. Uh, maybe, as you said in the podcast with uh, with Matt, 
or maybe somebody online suggested it. But at some point, someone planted the idea in my head. And I said, that sounds like a fantastic idea. Well, it does, because he's very shifty himself. Well, he's also got the background in intelligence work. He and Julian are very tight. They had been exchanging those letters in the books written by Una McCormack. I only sort of loosely connected into that uh, chronology. And some people had asked recently in some forums like the Trek BBS, why I didn't uh, make more of those letters and that correspondence between Bashir and Garak and why I didn't go into more of Garak's private life. And part of it was that Garak was just supposed to be a supporting player. And another factor was that I didn't want to retroactively establish any details that might contradict something that I knew Una McCormick might be working on. I knew she was working on another Garak-focused novel at the same time that I was working on Control. And I didn't want to step on her toes in any way. She did vet the scenes between Bashir and Garak. I sent them to her for her review. She made a few suggestions, which I took. And I made a suggestion to her after I was done writing control for something she might do in her upcoming Garak-focused uh, or Cardassian-focused book. And she liked that and took that and ran with it. So we we have coordinated. Uh, but if I didn't go into as much of the Garak-Bashir backstory as some people might have liked, it was only because I'm trying not to step on Una's toes. I really actually enjoyed... Uh, the use of Garrick in the story for sure. And I was kind of wondering, you know, kind of jumping around the novel a little bit. And for those of you listening, we are going to be spoiling the book. Uh, so I really urge you to go out and grab this one and, and give it a read before you listen to the episode. But just since bringing up Una McCormick's Garrick novel, are there going to be, I, I guess, I guess you mentioned kind of threads that, that you suggested, are we going to see kind of, are there any plans in your head for where Bashir and, you know, he's kind of in the care of Garrick at, right now, where that might be going in the future? I have not given it any thought whatsoever. I pretty much put him in a bad place at the end of Control. I acknowledge that. I don't actually have any plans to follow up the Section 31 story arc again at any point. I know some other authors are going to need to. I was in contact with Dayton Ward, and I was talking with James Swallow. And I, of course, mentioned a number of things to Margaret that she might want to follow up on with the, with those guys and with other authors. There's going to be a lot of narrative fallout from Section 31 Control. And I'm not sure to what degree other authors are going to incorporate those details into their stories and over what period of time that will happen. But because we do work in this shared literary universe and we do try to respect the consequences of each other's narrative decisions, I think that we're going to see that Dayton is probably going to try to address some of the fallout uh, for Picard that's going to happen when his role in certain uh, conspiracies and uh, shenanigans are revealed. It's going to go badly for him, and it's probably not going to have a good effect on his career track. Other people are probably also going to find themselves negatively affected. There's going to be impact on the political relationships between the Federation and its nearest galactic neighbors. And I think it's just going to be one of those things where it's going to be a body blow to the Federation's self-image. But if anything else, it's a testament to the resilience of the Federation that it's going to 
get through this by facing it head on, not by trying to cover it up, not by trying to bury it. Um, but once it's now out in the open, there's no choice but to deal with the muck, you know, to deal with the dark secret that's sort of been at the core of the Federation. Um, and they're just going to have to cope with it. Uh, I've given them no choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, something about the novel that really interested me and I found especially chilling while reading it was the idea of the surveillance state. And obviously in this novel, it's very much taken to the nth degree. But, you know, the idea that your every move, your every word is tracked by either, you know, some sort of intelligence division or in this case, you know, a, a hyper-intelligent supercomputer you know, we see a lot of kind of erosion of privacy in the world around us today. And, you know, maybe kind of an obvious question, but how much of the story of control was motivated by very real world concerns about surveillance? Quite a lot of it. And in fact, it's a chilling coincidence that the day the book was released was the day the House and the Senate uh, voted along party lines to let Internet service providers sell all of our personal browsing information uh, our email, the contents of our emails, the contents of our text messages and secure chats. Um, I mean, that was a grotesque violation of the privacy of American citizens foisted upon us by the Republican Party in an almost strictly partisan vote in both chambers of Congress. And it was just a coincidence that that happened on the day that my book, which is all about the threats to privacy, to liberty, to information security, uh, hit the stands. and So you gave them this idea then. They must have read the book and you gave them this idea. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly how that happened. I'm sure it had nothing to do with massive contributions from the broadband industry that was looking to monetize these, you know, kiloquads of information they've been sitting on for years and years. Um, of course, one in interesting criticism I saw from one fan was that they found it implausible that this legacy code related to this superintelligence in the book could have embedded itself in so many benign technologies, such as replicators, holodecks, phasers, transport devices, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, this is a strange complaint to me because just a week before the book came out or two weeks before the book came out, we were hearing complaints that the internet of things, the fact that the internet and wireless connectivity has been built into so many devices, such as televisions, microwaves, refrigerators, uh, hell, for some strange reason, uh, sex toys. These things have all been hacked recently where people were being spied on by their own televisions and information was being uh, you know, acquired, I think, by Samsung. And somebody was able to hack it and was able to listen in on people's private conversations in their home, even when the TV was supposed to be off. You know, people, women were finding that uh, their sex toys uh, were transmitting information about their usage back to the company, and the company got hacked. Uh, we had the government claiming that somebody was using microwaves to spy on them, as if Obama is looking through a microwave to spy on the current administration. And we've reached a point where so many common everyday devices are interconnected in this wireless manner and we think we're doing it for convenience, but what we're really doing is creating a whole lot of tremendously unsecured data channels that go right into our most private spaces, spaces where we don't think we could ever be monitored or spied upon or listened to. But 
what if they're listening to you literally through your fridge? I mean, if you've got a voice activation feature for something on your fridge or a voice activation feature on your fancy new microwave, it has to be able to listen for commands, which means if somebody can hack into it through a wireless signal, they can hack into its microphone and use it to listen to everything that happens in your kitchen. Yeah, this is this, not this, this isn't paranoia. This is science. This is real. Absolutely. Yeah, no, this this is something that to me in the book was was chillingly plausible. And I mean, usually I try and buy the the hard copy of the book, but it wasn't available in stores, unfortunately, on the release day. So I got the ebook version. And as I'm reading this, I'm looking down at my phone with its front facing camera pointed at me the whole time. I'm going, damn you, David Mack, you're scaring the crap out of me here. (laughs) I hope I haven't hurt sales of the (laughs) ebook. But it's true what you're saying, because I've heard people talk about voice activated devices. I mean, they're always listening. You're not pushing a button all the time to allow it to know that you're ready to speak to it, like the Amazon Echo or Alexa or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's listening at all times. And until you actually address it, mm-hmm. then it takes your voice command. So if it's listening all the time, where's that audio going? I mean, is it just staying within the device or is it? you know, like you're saying, possibly being used or stored somewhere else. Well, I mean, it's possible that the device, although it's listening for that command, it may just be listening passively. The threat is if another entity figures out how to hack into that device and access the data from its microphone, even though the device is listening passively, someone else may be listening actively through that device without your knowledge or consent. Just as people have found that there's ways for hackers to turn on the video camera on your laptop or your phone without the activation light going on as a warning, it's entirely plausible they could easily turn on a microphone on your television, your Amazon Echo, your voice-activated microwave if someday they invent one of those. Anything that's going to have a microphone can be used to listen if somebody knows how to access it. I mean, there's reason to think the NSA has had that capability for years. So, of course, that's where you get this idea of control in the book. There's all these devices, all this technology that is actively being used in so many different capacities that there's a program now behind them that is listening and manipulating humanity to do what it thinks it needs to do in order to put humanity in a safe place. Is that is that right? Is that what this program is doing? Pretty much. Yeah. It's an amoral program. But it's one that has a strict set of parameters, which is to safeguard humanity, safeguard Earth, and safeguard its allies in that order. And it has access to all this data. And what separates it from the earlier incarnation of the surveillance state, the only thing that we have going for us right now is that even though a tremendous amount of our data is accessible to the government and maybe to nefarious parties that we don't know about, there is so much raw data flying around at any given moment that it's almost impossible for any one entity to sort through it all in any meaningful way. Even the NSA's Echelon program, which I've just triggered by mentioning its name, at most it listens for certain keyword mentions. It listens for words that will make it think it's tracked into something that's a security threat, and it'll flag those. But it's intercepting in a a virtual dragnet everything. It's just using very targeted filters, as far as we know, to try and find things that are meaningful within that data set. 
But if you had something on the order of an artificial superintelligence, which in the next century is extremely plausible given advances in computer technology, in hardware, software, quantum computing, uh, and, and other technology, especially if you get to the Star Trek level where you're talking about faster-than-light-enhanced computer processing cores, now you've got an entity that can think it faster than light. And if it can figure out how to propagate signals that faster than light for real-time connections between far-flung points within the solar system and then eventually over interstellar distances, what you have is something that's not just a supercomputer. It's not living on one box in one room where you can go in and just pull the plug. What you now have is a distributed artificial superintelligence that exists you know, in the 23rd or 24th century equivalent of the cloud, well, the cloud is just a word for somebody else's computers. But if it lives on everybody's computers, that's not the cloud, that's the nebula, that's the galaxy. You're talking about a galactically distributed artificial superintelligence. When you get to that level of processing power and that level of access, really what you have is an entity that's capable of just about anything in terms of the manipulation and interpretation of uh, raw data. Okay, so in the book, this super intelligence, this super artificial intelligence, it's, it's called Uriai, Uria? Uriai, Uriai. Uriai. It's, it's from Egyptian mythology, and uh, they were essentially uh, a pair of snakes, I believe, that could spit fire. Uh, I'm trying to remember which god they were connected to. I think I actually spell it out in the text. I think I mentioned it in one of the early chapters. Funny thing, actually, the original name I gave to it in an earlier draft of the book was Ansili. Ansili was a shield of the Roman god Mars, and it was given to the city of Rome uh, as a symbol of protection. And the myth was that as long as Ansili remained in Rome, Rome would be forever protected from attack. It would remain sovereign. It was to guarantee the sovereignty of Rome. And then to dissuade or thwart thieves or those who would try to steal Ansili, a number of copies of it were made. And it is from Ansili that we get the word ancillary. So I had this great thing. Uh, Ansili was going to be the name of my protective superintelligence. And I was told I had to change it because apparently there's a business software company that makes security products and their name is Ansili. And just because of the specific arena of software they work in, it was feared that it could be seen as a derogatory statement of you know on them as, as a commercial entity. So I was forced to dig in at the last minute at page proofs and replace Ansili with another uh, reference, another name. And I basically had to dig deep into mythology, and I chose Egyptian mythology and settled on Uriai. Were they worried about that, or did you just know a little bit too much? <laughs> I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> I should point out that the views expressed by the hosts on... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> In no way reflect our real feelings about artificial superintelligences, which we think are just swell. <laughs> exactly. So, the, so now, okay, in the book, the this artificial intelligence is created for protection, Yes. originally but it kind of gets out of control so could you tell us about one well, out of control haha no pun intended sure. so can you can you tell us the how that all started uh how this program got started in the book in the book it is the creation of a professor named aaron eikerson who is working at the dresden institute of technology 
along with his assistant, Lenore McGill. They are working on government contract to try and develop a, a program that can monitor all sorts of data streams to find actionable intelligence to aid law enforcement and Earth security. Ikerson succeeds a little bit too well. He develops this artificial superintelligence that he demonstrates for members of Earth's uh, sort of, I guess at that point, five major governments. Earth isn't even fully unified at this stage. And he shows them a sampling of what this thing can do, how it can listen in to everything around the world and find everything from national security threats to ongoing crimes in progress to domestic violence incidents that are about to erupt and require intervention. So it's showing that it's capable of not only seeing threat patterns and ongoing threats, it's capable of predicting threats. And it's capable of doing so at multiple levels. And then it demonstrates that instead of taking action itself, it has been programmed to relay all the things it finds to the proper authorities. This, you know, is a national security matter. This should go to this national security agency. This is a criminal matter. This should go to this law enforcement agency. This is a military matter. This should go to Starfleet and so on and so forth. And at that point, it seems like it works great. What they don't count on is what happens when you give it these directives, but you also give it these limiting parameters, and someday it finds a threat that it has no recourse for, something where it says, well, it can't go to this because they don't have the proper authority. It can't go to them because they're impotent to deal with it, and it can't go to this organization because that would expose you know, the existence of URI in the first place. At that point, the program is in a conundrum. It has to report, but it can't report. So it resolves the problem by creating something it can report to when it can't report to anybody else. And URI, for the good of Earth and the human race, creates Section 31. And it creates a whole network of virtual operatives to give it the sheen of legitimacy. And then through those virtual operatives, it recruits flesh and blood agents, real human beings, who are led to believe that the organization has this history and this legitimacy, but in fact is a completely virtual construct of URI. I really, uh, the scientists that created it, I had a real kind of Oppenheimer vibe from him a little bit, kind of. I have having... become death. I am destroyer of worlds. What have I made? What have I done? Exactly. Yeah. He was, he was very sympathetic. I found because, you know, the idea behind it, I mean, it's very, I mean, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and all those cliches, but you know, he really, and, and also he sees the writing on the wall too. Oh, he but, realized belatedly that he had made a terrible mistake. And once he realizes that the machine is outgrowing him and outgrowing his ability to rein it in, he becomes legitimately terrified of this creation. And mm -hmm. with good reason, spoiler alert, the thing kills him in the end because it realizes that he is trying to plot against it. He is trying to rein it in. And Uriah decides that for the good of its mission objectives, it cannot allow itself to be reined in. It cannot allow itself to be neutered or scaled back. So it takes action. And this is one of my favorite chapters that I've ever had the pleasure of writing was I wrote an entire chapter in executable code to show the point of view of URI, a.k.a. control, as it analyzes and recognizes the threat and then takes action 
to contain, neutralize, or eliminate that threat. And it all happens in the span of you know, minutes or maybe even seconds. But writing it in executable code, which was based on the Wolfram Alpha code, uh, which is used in some AI programming, uh, with, and I had some great input on that from Dayton Ward, who in his previous occupation before becoming a full-time novelist was a software programmer, first with the military and then with telecommunications companies. So I, I had his feedback and input, and I had the Wolfram Alpha language as a foundation on which to build. But I wrote an entire chapter from the point of view of the artificial intelligence in executable code. That was fun. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I really loved that chapter. I thought that was a really great way to illustrate what was going on and the kind of tension that's building as you see what's, you know, what URI is working towards here. I, I kind of have to ask, was that something that you kind of had to convince your editor would work? Because I could imagine a lot of book publishers kind of having reservations about that sort of thing. Uh, but I have to say, I, I absolutely loved it. It is uh, one of those things where I'm happy to say that I got no pushback whatsoever from my acquiring editor, Margaret Clark, or the in-house editor, Ed Schlesinger, who had to oversee the production process. There was a lot of uh, interaction between me and the production department, more than usual, in making certain that chapter was formatted very precisely. Normally in book publishing, when you have certain letters appear next to each other, like an F and an L, two Fs, an F and an I, anything where there's, uh, you know, descending strokes and dots or whatever, they create something called ligatures. It's something that goes back to the earliest days of printings, but it's, it continues to be duplicated in a digital format. I had to put in specific instructions during copy edit to say, do not use ligatures in this chapter. Uh, do not link these characters. Reproduce this chapter in a monospace font, either Andale, Monda, uh, Andale Mono or Courier. Uh, I had to say maintain the following line breaks to make it look properly like uh, executable code. Uh, turn off the function for hyphenation at end of line. If a word breaks, you wouldn't use hyphenation in code because hyphens screw up code. All kinds of little things like that. And as a result, we had to go over that chapter multiple times, me in production, going back and forth, fixing tiny, picky little details. But the result was that we got something that really looks great. It looks like a flood of computer code scrolling up your page. And I was very pleased with the final result in the hard copy. I hope it uh, comes through the same way or as effectively in an ebook format. I haven't seen it in an ebook format. But uh, it was one of those things where I guess after 16 years or so of writing Star Trek novels, I have earned a level of trust from my editors where they didn't even ask me, uh, are you sure this will work? Are you <laughs> sure this is a good idea? Those questions were never raised. It was just, and I want to do this chapter in the form of computer code. And my editors said, cool. Good luck. Oh, that's really awesome. Yeah, I do have to say, uh, reading it in the ebook format, uh, just because of the level I had it zoomed in and the, the font size, it was a little bit wonky on my phone. But if you, anybody out there reading it in ebook format, if you just change the font size, everything snaps to exactly where it should be. So it looked really good. I wonder if people reading it in ebook get to that chapter and then suddenly think, did my ebook break? 
<laughs> That's a very real possibility because some of the early ebooks that I read had errors that looked as weird as that. <laughs> I just, I wonder if that, uh, that, that's actually part of the effect is I want it to be a little bit jarring when people get to it and go, whoa, what the hell is that? I think it'll be more effective that particular chapter in ebook. In print, you flip the page and you go, okay, I don't know what I'm looking at, but it's clearly deliberate. It's printed. Somebody saw this and proved it. So it's not a mistake. What am I looking at? In ebook, you think, did my file get corrupted? <laughs> and so you have that moment of cognitive dissonance. And I think that that's a chapter that's going to have a lot more impact for readers in the, who read it in electronic formats. Yuri is in my ebook reader. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Watch out for that camera, Dan. Oh, <laughs> man. Staring at you. <laughs> but, yeah, when I got to that chapter, I knew where what you were doing right away. But I was just wondering, is this the whole chapter? And I just kept going and going and going and realized it was the whole chapter. It was really cool. But let's get to Uri because not just the code in that chapter, but the thing I like about Star Trek, and I think I can speak for most fans, is it's that that ray of hope that our civilization lives beyond this day and age into a time where it's more of a utopia on earth where we're one nation and we're traveling the stars and we've accomplished so much in humanity and our prejudices and our racism and our sexism and all those things and now reading this book did we really succeed as humanity or have we been manipulated and controlled by this artificial intelligence. It almost suggests to me that we may not have had the Federation if it wasn't for this program. A lot of uh, readers have expressed similar misgivings, particularly in discussion boards related to Star Trek books. I would disagree with that assessment. I don't think it's quite as dire as that. I think that URI and Control got humanity where it wanted to go, maybe a little faster than it would have gotten there on its own. It spared them some growing pains that maybe they would have had to go through. Um, but I don't think it gave us anything that we weren't already on track for. I think it just cleared the road. It streamlined the process. It took away some of the pain that we were going to go through as a species. There are always going to be people who have an authoritarian bent to their personality, who have a natural affinity for authoritarian styles of government or authoritarian organizations, and who are going to chafe at the notion of a nanny state or a government with a high level of central control. And the, uh, the URI and the control entity that springs from it recognizes that, and I think it just wanted to get the problem elements, the the really violent dissenters, the ones that were going to cause mass destruction, mass damage, the sort of thing that might derail or significantly postpone humanity's progress. It just wanted to get those troublemakers out of the way, which, of course, is a rather dangerous way of looking at it. To call them troublemakers, of course, invokes the FBI's COINTELPRO counterintelligence program from the 60s, which was notorious when uh, certain memos came out saying you know, we can identify certain troublemakers in SDS and the Black Panther movement and we can neutralize them. Uh, so it has troubling echoes of that. On the one hand, URI and control are definitely meant to be a troubling entity. 
its level of interference, its level of intrusion is meant to be troubling. But I think it's going a step too far to say that its intervention and its actions invalidate all of humanity's achievements. It cannot dictate to people what their actions are going to be. It can't decide, for instance, what a starship captain is actually going to do in any given situation. It's not like it's got total mind control over every human being in the Federation. At some point, human beings and their allies still had to do the things they did. They still had to make the choices. They still had to choose peace over war. They had to choose science over superstition. These things still had to happen. URI simply eliminated some of the barriers to that progress and maybe did so in a way that is morally and ethically questionable. Well, some of the most memorable parts of the book for me, for example, were when URI manipulated things so that a certain scientist would sit next to someone else on a transport and kind of like... So they would know, meet and talk. Yeah, exactly. Those those guys got it from here, kind of. And, ar- and arrange for delays so that they would t- strike up a conversation. And once they did, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. they're going to compare notes and they're going to you know put their heads together. These two will sort it out. But you have to engineer that moment of fate that puts them together. In that respect, URI is sort of like a form of virtual fate. Hmm. It can set the stage, but it can't control what the players do once the stage is set. It's basically like a director of an improv troupe. You do your best. You try to move the right pieces into place, but you're dealing with improv actors. They're going to surprise you. So you just have to be prepared for every eventuality and have a contingency plan. That's what URI is. It's a series of algorithms and contingency plans that are constantly revising, constantly updating, constantly branching and growing and learning. Well, that kind of leads me to uh, one thing about URI that I thought was very realistic and made a lot of sense was basically its frustration with us meatbags, <laughs> you know, us, yeah, like us, us slow humanoids who, you know, might get around to thinking something correctly, but he's already a million years ahead of us kind of thing. And I thought that was really interesting how frustrated it must be with us. <laughs> it also doesn't really have much in the way of peers. I mean, you might have the Fellowship of Artificial Intelligence that Data dealt with in the Cold Equations trilogy and which had been previously established in uh, Immortal Coil by author Jeff Lang. But I'm not sure that URI would find companionship with the Fellowship of AI. I think it might view them more as rivals or as threats. Um, And by the time we get to the end of Control, part of what I was going for was that control on a certain level, after a few centuries or, or a couple of centuries of unfettered uh, power, has become a bit of a megalomaniac. It has become a bit high on its own brand. It has been smoking, it, it's been smoking its own brand, and it's starting to believe it. And that's a bit of a problem. You've got an AI that is essentially starting to go off the deep end. But it starts to recognize that in itself. Right. Well, it realizes, for one thing, that Section 31 as an entity is a necessary evil, but it's also something that every now and then starts to get out of control. And when that happens, you've got to rein it in, burn it down, and then bring it back when you're ready for it. Uh, That's how we explain certain events in the history of Section 31 that made it seem as if the organization had been exposed 
or why it seems to have lain fallow for long periods of time without activity. And the notion here was that the Tezua affair, which goes back to my first pair of full-length novels, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal, which were released in the fall of 2004, those moments sort of represent the moment at which the current incarnation of Section 31 started to go off the rails. That's the point where they began to just go too far. They started to, the human operatives and the biological operatives of 31 began to take it upon themselves to meddle in things where even control was not telling them to do so. And at that point, control realizes, okay, they need to be reined in. At a certain point, they become a liability, and control realizes it is in the best interest of the Federation to burn this organization down, expose it, let all of its crimes come to light, let it all get swept away. But before it can do that, it wants to know, it wants to be sure for itself that it has set in place sufficient safeguards that the Federation will continue in the absence of Section 31. It wants to know that as it steps into the background to go and do other things with its virtual life, that it is not leaving the Federation undefended. It wants to, you know, so, and that, that's pretty much the point of the final chapter, which is from the point of view of control uh, in the aftermath of Section 31 getting burned down at the end of the book. It's sort of looking ahead. It's looking at all of its future projections and saying, okay, all of the major threats that could have challenged the Federation have been dealt with. They've been contained. The current rivals are all pretty much going to stumble and fall on their face within the next decade or 20 years. Federation's in a good place. It's trending in a good direction. They seem secure for the moment. If they don't need me, I'm going to move on. I'll be watching. I'll be listening. I'll still be here. But it seems like they've got this. That's pretty much the intention. That's the subtext of the last chapters. Control realizing they don't really need me anymore. They got this. So it's almost like we've grown up right. as the Federation. We're now able to go on our own. We're, the leash is off the dog and we can start running. Right. The parent has realized the child doesn't need me anymore. I can step back. If something goes wrong, I can step back in. But for now, they don't need me. So do you think this is going to change the way the authors approach the books going forward in this timeline and, and the, how they approach the Federation, or is it really doesn't seem to have much play in the storytelling? Well, there's going to have to be some aftermath that comes from this book. Obviously, Picard has his role in the Tezwa affair exposed. Um, the assassination of a sitting Federation president is exposed, along with the assassination of several key senior members of his administration, that's going to be an uproar. The crimes of Section 31 and of the URI software and the intrusions it made into the networks of both friendly and rival powers, that's going to be a storm. They're going to be dealing with blowback on this for years. And it's going to shake a lot of people's feder you know, uh, confidence in what the Federation represents. But in a way, I think that that's just going to push the Federation to prove its bona fides and prove its virtue even more than before. I think that, again, some of the authors, I, I know that uh, I spoke to Dayton Ward and he felt that he had been looking for a reason to justify some career reversals that he was going to visit upon Jean-Luc Picard. And when I told him what I was doing in control, he said, oh, that's perfect. 
So I know that Dayton is probably going to take that ball and run with it. Una McCormick has been very closely uh, involved with my planning on control. She knew exactly what I was doing, where I was going, what situation I was leaving Bashir in. So she's going to pick up those story threads in a Cardassia novel that she's already written. So I know that Una's going to deal with it. Dayton's going to deal with it. And I think I made some mention of the uh, fallout of those events in my Titan novel, which is roughly contemporaneous with the events of Control. As for how it's going to get propagated out into other books by other authors, I have no idea. I don't know what Margaret is telling the other authors. I don't know what other books have been planned. And at this point, I don't even know if the uh, track license, I think the track license is being renegotiated right now. So I don't think any books have been purchased yet for 2018. So I think uh, aside from like the first two books of 2018, which I think maybe are already in the pipeline, most of that year is still up for grabs and it's probably going to be sorted out in the next few months. Uh, I might or might not be aboard with that as I'm currently working on a pair of books back to back for tour, but at some point I'll return to track. I just don't know when. Excellent. Well, one, another aspect of this story that I wanted to talk a little bit about is one of my favorite characters in all of Star Trek history, and that's data. And the way that he and lol are used in this story I have to say, I really appreciate a lot of fans out there like, oh, when's Data going to be back in Starfleet, all that kind of stuff. But I think this book especially really illustrates how far he has come as a character and how kind of unfettered he is by the limitations that he had back in those days. It's kind of hard to imagine him being a Starfleet officer again and, and kind of being a subordinate when he's this powerful a being. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts as to, you know, where Data and Lal are in their journey right now and kind of any, you know, do you see where he might be going in the future? This is another case where I have no idea. I left his status at the end of Control deliberately vague. He was badly damaged, of course, in the final action sequence of the book. However, I do have someone pass along information, uh, Garak telling Esri, uh, or maybe Esri telling Garak, I'm sorry, I think it's the other way around, Esri telling Garak, I have it on good authority that a certain artificial friend of ours is getting the help he needs from Starfleet to rebuild himself and et cetera. I did that for a couple of reasons. One, if the next author along, whether it's Jeff Lang or somebody else, wants to tell a data story, and wants to scale back some of his Android abilities from where I have him in control, well, they can explain it as, well, they can only do so much repair. The Starfleet didn't have the necessary tech. It's going to take data time to figure out how to rebuild it on his own. He doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the time, whatever. So that was one thing. Another was, if they really want to bring him back into Starfleet, by creating a situation where Starfleet is assisting him with his repairs, that he's going back to Geordi, Geordi is assisting him, maybe Captain Maddox is involved. If we want to create a storyline in which Data could come back to Starfleet and have a plausible uh, backstory for doing so, this provides it. He could now be in contact, he's working with them, and then some situation could arrive for which... Uh, Data is particularly or uniquely suited to answer the call, and they could say, we need you back. Will you accept a temporary commission 
and come back to deal with this. And for the you know sake of a single story, you could justify Data coming back in. And if at the end of it, the character change for Data is that he realizes this is still a good life and this is still a good place for me, then you can justify that within the context of the story. As far as Law, Law was never Starfleet. She would have no love of Starfleet, no reason to go to it. She might want to stay near her father. What I was really hoping to accomplish with Law in Control was to explore the deepening of her moral world. She, although she looks like a uh, an adult woman, uh, she has the point of view of a child. She's only a few years old. She's only recently resurrected. And she's still, despite her, you know, rather vast intellectual capacity as an artificial intelligence, has very little life experience, very little emotional context. So I wanted to put her in a situation where in the course of defending herself, she takes a life. And she does it completely justifiably. This is someone who was shooting to kill who had dangerous weapons, who could have done her serious harm or even destroyed her. And she does what she has to do to survive. But then she's haunted by this decision because she is an artificial intelligence who has an almost perfect replay memory. She can relive this moment in her mind in a virtual state over and over, and she can replay it with variations. She can think, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? She tells Data at one point, you know, I've thought of thousands of variations on what I could have done to resolve that situation without killing that person. Why didn't I come up with them in the moment? And Data has to explain to her, we are not perfect. We are fallible, despite our great capabilities. Uh, We are not creatures of perfect computation. We have emotions. We are going to make emotional decisions. The thing that separates us from biological entities, such as humans, or Vulcans, or anybody else, is that as artificial entities, we have these perfect memories, and we run the risk of getting lost in those memories, of second-guessing our decisions forever. He says, at some point, you have to let go of that. You have to realize the past is the past. It cannot be undone. It cannot be replayed. And there is nothing to be gained by torturing yourself with this instant replay in your head over and over. At some point, you simply have to accept that you did not act out of malicious motive, and you have to move on from that. And for Lull, that's a very important thing, because she has sort of taken a step into a whole new moral universe. She is now someone who has taken a life, and that's a very big step for her, and one that's very difficult for her, and one that's difficult for Data, because he's, he's had to do it himself. But now he revisits those things the same way she does with emotions embedded into his matrix. And he is now in a very strange place where as her father, but also as her mentor into artificial existence, uh, he's got to counsel her. This is how you live with these decisions. Yeah, I really appreciated the story kind of taking a moment to deal with that. It was, it, to me, felt like a very kind of ironically a very human moment and uh, is one of my favorite parts of this book for sure. It was actually the moment where she retreats down into the cargo bay and is sort of seeking this moment of isolation. And he comes down to offer her perspective and solace was inspired by one of my all time favorite scenes in cinema. Although the scene that I'm thinking of in the, in the movie had no dialogue whatsoever. It's the moment in the movie Casino Royale when Bond comes back to the hotel room 
and finds Vesper in her in her dress in the shower, shaking and trembling after they've had to kill the guy in the stairwell. And she's just totally in shock. And he sits down next to her in the shower and he turns up the heat on the water. And he just, you know, in his tux, sits down beside her and, and comforts her. It was the emotional tenor of that moment where someone who before that incident could have a certain claim to a degree of innocence, however tainted it might have been, however flawed it might have been, there was still a measure of innocence because she was someone who had not taken a life. And then from that moment forward, she will always be someone who has taken a life. And Bond realizes that this is a woman who is not cut from the same cloth that he is, and that this is a true emotional and psychic wound for her. And he still has enough of his own humanity left that he's able to reach out and offer comfort. And that moment in Casino Royale was the inspiration behind Data counseling Lal for all of her guilt over defending herself. Yeah, I really love how you brought these characters back uh, from where you left them in your um, in your cold co- equations books. I mean, it was just great to... I, I wasn't even expecting them to even appear in this one. So it was a great, pleasant surprise to see Data and Law on this one. But, you know, I feel like we've talked so much about the program and about Data. And, you know, this is really Bashir's the lead character. I feel like he's really the one that's just leading us through all these elements that we're talking about, but he has that relationship with Serena Douglas and the two of them are out to take down section 31, which of course we found out it's more of your Yuri eyes involvement that really takes down section 31. But you know, Serena hasn't been always loved by fans. I mean, I've always loved the relationship of Bashir and Serena, but for some reason, a lot of people just do not like Serena, but I think they're going to like how this book ends. And I was wondering if... Well, I I guess I I have to take some of the blame on that. If fans don't like the depiction of Serena in the recent books that go back to zero-sum game and which continues through a ceremony of losses, then disavowed and now control, if they don't like Serena, at least partly that's my fault. It means that on some level, I, as the author, have failed to make them sympathize with her. I have failed to make her a sympathetic character. I failed to demonstrate to them in prose why it is that they should sympathize with her, why they should like her, why they should care about her. If they don't, then on some level that failing is mine. And I regret that because I truly loved her character, and I believed in the romance between her and Bashir. There were some people, I think, who have just never given up on the whole Bashir-Ezri thing, even though in the literary continuity, that crashed and burned within about six months after the DS9 finale. They were just not meant for each other, and what happened was Ezri, in the books, uh, embraced the full potential of the Dax symbiont, embraced a bigger destiny, switched from medical to, you know, command track, uh, and has seen a consistent upward trajectory in her career ever since. Whereas with uh, Serena, I went back and I rewatched both Statistical Probabilities, which introduced the Jackpack, and then Chrysalis, the Deep Space Nine episode in which Bashir frees Serena from her sort of cataleptic state 
by bringing her senses and her synapses back into sync. And there was a great romance happening at the heart of Chrysalis. Bashir actually states in that episode, I have finally found the woman I've been looking for my entire life. This is not a statement he makes lightly. This is not something that he just tosses off. He clearly believes this is his soulmate. This is the woman he's always been looking for. But in the end, he has to let her go because she is not ready to be with him. She has only recently been freed from the cataleptic state in that episode. He wants to move into full-blown relationship. She still has to learn how to live. So he has to let her go. And for fans, I guess, you know, that was the end of it. They wrote it off as Romance of the Week. I see it as the great lost love of Bashir's life. This was the moment he had waited for, and then it was taken from him. So that in Zero Sum Game, when she comes back, she represents the return of possibility for Bashir. When we caught up with Bashir in uh, Zero Sum Game, which was my novel for the Typhon Pack books, um, the notion was that by that point, a lot of his peers on DS9 have moved on in ways that he has not. Worf has gone on to become an ambassador. He's had a diplomatic career. Now he's first officer on the Enterprise. He's back on the command track. Esri's got her own ship at this point. Uh, Kira has moved on to other things. Someone else is commanding the station. All his friends are gone. Everybody's moved on to bigger and better things. Even Quark is an ambassador of the Ferengi Alliance. Everybody has become something greater, something bigger in Zero Sum Game, except Bashir. Bashir looks around and realizes, I've been standing still for 10 years. What happened? What happened to my life? What happened to my potential? And then he's offered a chance to live up to his potential, and I, I did it by bringing back Serena and sort of enmeshing him in the whole intelligence thing, which was always his fascination, his obsession. And uh, I tried to be, you know... I tried to, as much as I could to make the relationship between Bashir and Serena, which I reignited in Zero Sum Game, I tried to make it plausible. I tried to make it real. And I tried to make it something significant to Bashir. Um, and it disappoints me that some fans uh, or some readers, uh, readers of the books feel that I just didn't pull it off. But if that's how they feel, that's how they feel. But I tracked them through numerous books. They've been through tons of adventures together. They've been through hell together. Um, you know, and when he had to leave the service, she left the service after ceremony of losses. And, uh, you know, so I, I hope that her fate uh, at the end of control and, you know, the, well, I mean, let's not be coy about it. She dies. She dies badly. <laughs> uh, it's a tragic ending and he has to watch her die. And it's a horrible loss for him. It's a, it's the kind of loss he's never had to take in his whole life. He's never been through anything like this. And it breaks him. It shatters him. It ruins his world. After she's gone, the way that, in specific, the manner in which she is taken from him destroys him. It leaves him wrecked and hollow and basically broken. And by the end of the book, he is left in the state in which he first found her. And that's not accidental. That's a deliberate choice. In many ways, he is psychologically living out uh, a penance that he is imposing on himself by taking on this state in which he first found her. Because in a way, he regrets having ever brought her out of it because he blames himself for having set her on a path that led to her death. 
And that was, oh, that, that entire ending of Bashir and, and Serena's story in this book was, wow, like that, that hurt. That was, that was really brutal. Um, and, and one thing that, that kind of occurred to me after, like at the very end of the book, it's revealed that Control kind of had this plan in place, you know, a contingency plan to step back and have them destroy Section 31 anyway just so vindictive and cruel on control's part to yeah it's an immoral entity it has no morals it has no ethics it has no feelings mm -hmm. yeah and i mean it wasn't it wasn't even vindictive in the sense of oh you thwarted my plan it's like no you performed your role exactly in my plan as i wanted to and here's your reward like oh brutal <laughs> i loved it i loved it i mean i thought it was genius i was just like wow you know this entity is really controlling everything to the point that I think it's lost its mind, which we kind of talked about that a mm -hmm. little while ago. But mm -hmm. it's like, you know, the whole book was planned by the whole storyline is basically planned by this entity. I mean, it, it got what it wanted out of it. And even though we don't like what it did to some of our characters, because I love Serena. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's the only time in a long time that I've read a book where I said out loud, no, 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 no. My wife's just <laughs> staring at me here, <laughs> but, here. Absolutely. But uh, yeah. I mean, I loved it. It was great. Yeah. I mean, it was heartbreaking for me to, to kill her off because I love the character and I love the relationship between her and Bashir. But I realized that for this book to have weight for it, to have meaning Bashir's victory had to come at a price. And then when you find out that that victory it has actually been subverted. You realize the whole thing is an unapologetic tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what it takes me back to my first ever Star Trek novel, a short novel, uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineers, Wildfire. I mean, my first foray into writing, you know, prose for the novels, uh, you know, on my own was a tragedy. And uh, I guess I sort of wanted to get back to those roots. And I felt like I hadn't written a true tragedy in a very long time. And uh, this one definitely fits the bill. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I can't think of a better term to uh, describe it for sure. Yeah, it's a tragedy. And it was intended from the very beginning to be a tragedy. Uh, there is no victory. There is no catharsis. Um, there is no joy. Um, tragedies in, in the classical sense of drama, tragedies end in death and comedies end in marriage. Well, this ends in death, 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 and more death, and disgrace, and downfall, and destruction, and ignominy. This is I, I, this is an unapologetic tragedy. It was always meant to be, and that's exactly what it is. Well, you've changed how I view the Borg. You've changed the way I view Data, and now you're changing the way I view Section 31 in the Federation. I don't know how much more you're going to change, but... <laughs> It's working for me. I, anytime mm -hmm. I watch anything now, I look at it in a different lens. Let's just say that. Well, if you if you enjoy that, I hope you'll enjoy my Titan novel, Fortune of War, which is coming at the end of 2017. It's going to be released, I believe, on the last Tuesday of November. And the blurb for that is already out, so I can spoil a little bit. Uh, if you remember the TNG third season episode, The Survivors, where the TNG uh, crew meets... Kevin and Rashawn Uxbridge, the last two survivors of the Hustock assault on, I believe it was Delta Rana 4. And the whole planet has been baked down to a crisp, except for this little patch of grass with a cute little house on it. You remember that episode? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. And it turns out that Kevin Uxbridge was this 
uh, immortal being called a Dowd, which has godlike powers. And he loved Rashan, but the planet came under attack. The Dowd are pacifists. The uh, Husnak obliterate the planet, kill Rashan and everybody else, lay waste to the surface. And so Kevin, in a moment of fury, abandons his principles for just one moment. And as he puts it in the episode, he destroyed the Husnak, all 50 billion of them everywhere. He wiped the species out of existence. He just, he killed every last one of them instantaneously. The thing that he didn't say is he, he said he destroyed the Husnak. He didn't destroy their planets. He didn't destroy their ships. He didn't destroy their star bases. He didn't destroy their weapons, their technology, their factories, their computers. That stuff's all just sitting out there waiting for somebody to find it. And if it's found by the wrong people, holy <laughs> do we have a problem. Oh, very cool. And it is now 20 years later, and a Starfleet cultural research team has found a Husnak colony world, but not the home world and not any of the dangerous stuff. But they're trying to figure it out, and they found something important. And it triggers, essentially, a, a, a multipolar arms race where everybody who wants to capitalize on the lost Husnak technology comes gunning for it with a vengeance. And you've got players coming at this from every angle. And the Titan and its uh, escort ships, its battle group, if you will, are caught in the middle. And although they are normally ships of exploration, on this occasion, they are told, you've got to get in there. You've got to secure this stuff and make sure nobody else gets their hands on it. And if they do, you've got to neutralize them at all costs. And it turns into basically a big, bloody show of a mission where everything goes wrong and it's going to put uh, poor Admiral Riker and Captain Vale and their sister ships and all of their subordinates are going to be put cruelly to the test. So uh, that's going to be a fun action thrill ride. And then at the, I don't want to say the other end of the spectrum, but in a very different uh, approach to uh, an action oriented Star Trek novel at some point, either Later this year, or maybe early 2018, I have no idea when this book is coming out. <laughs> I've finished writing a Star Trek Discovery novel. And I've been working on this uh, in close contact with my friend Kirsten Beyer, who, as you know, is in the writer's room on the new TV show. And I've been getting great feedback from her and from the writer's room, the producers. I've been in the loop on scripts, production material, photographs from the set, so I've had everything really that they can provide to me. They have shared with me. Um, and that book is going to be a, a lot of fun. I, I still have to be kind of circumspect. I don't have an approved publicity blurb for it. So I can't really say anything about the content of the book, um, except that it deals with the characters, ships, and situations that are going to be established in the first two episodes of the show. Uh, I think it's uh, going to be a fun book for fans to read. I think it's going to have a lot of things where they're going to go, oh, yeah, I was hoping you were going to do that. And I think it's going to be a, a great companion piece to the premiere of the series. It's going to give us some really great insight into the main character, Michael Burnham, played by Sonequa Martin-Green. We're going to learn uh, some important things in the book uh, about her past, about her history, um, her youth, things that are going to be hinted at in the series, but not gone too deeply into. And again, although I have to be 
circumspect, I will say that uh, the core idea for the book came from a specific request by Brian Fuller, who at the time the request was made was still the showrunner. Um, and the show is still continuing on that track that he set. So this book isn't just like something that I pulled out of my butt out of nowhere and tried to graft onto their property. This is a storyline that one of the show's co-creators asked me specifically to explore. And the feedback I've been getting so far on the manuscript uh, from my editor and from Kirsten uh, has been very good, very favorable. I'm told that a number of the writers on the staff are interested in reading the manuscript. Uh, they're curious to see what I've done with the characters. Uh, and I think that fans are really, you know, if, if fans dig the new series, anybody who digs the new series, I think is really going to love this book. Holy crap. I can't wait for all these <laughs> books to come out. It's here, like, here. <laughs> we got to wait till November for the TNG book. And then who knows when the discovery book, I mean, oh my I, gosh. I'm, not, I'm hoping the fall, but it could be, who knows? And they haven't actually told us when the show is going to drop. The only thing I know for certain is that because the book contains spoilers for those first two episodes, the publication of my book for Discovery has to be held until, I think, a few weeks after whenever they finally set the date for the premiere. So at this point, that's part of why the publisher can't release publicity material uh, related to my book. We can't release the blurb, the description, or anything, because we don't know when the book is going to drop, and we're trying to keep as many of our cards as close to our vests as we can. Uh, because we don't want to spoil anything. I mean, hell, I didn't even want to spoil the main character's name, but it got splashed all over the news this week. So <laughs> it's out there now. So now I can say it, Michael Burnham. But um, beyond that, I still have to be very careful what I say, because I know that there are CBS snipers with infrared <laughs> scopes watching me through my window at every moment, uh, waiting for me to say something I'm not supposed to say, so they can just go, and that'd be the end of that. Your is already kind of, standing by to make the call right now <laughs> and then the other thing i can tell you is that what i'm looking forward to is i believe either in late january or early february of 2018 we'll see the release of at long last the midnight front which is the first book in my dark arts series which i'm writing for tour i just finished vetting the copy edits uh, Marco Palmieri, who previously was a star trek books editor for many years and with whom i feel i've done much of my best work for Star Trek uh, and with whom I uh, am now doing some great work on my original stuff uh, has told me that the cover is coming along nicely. I'm hoping to see something in the next few weeks. And uh, I'm told that the primary release format for dark arts is going to be trade paperback original, which is great news for fans because I know a lot of fans are put off when a book comes out for the first time and it's in hardcover and it costs like 26 27 dollars and they go oh crap who's got 26 27 dollars well the good news is uh tor is bringing it out in trade paperback original for the retail market so the book is only going to be priced maybe i don't know what the final price is going to be but it's going to be nowhere near 27 it's probably going to be like 16 or 17 something like that a far more reasonable price um so you don't you won't have to pay hardcover prices which is great news for the fans um, but there is going to be some hardcover editions available for the institutional markets, I'm told, like libraries, book clubs, things like that. Uh, I don't know if any are going to be available on retail channels. Uh, 
But, you know, if, so if you're someone who really needs to have it in hardcover, there may be a way to get it in hardcover. But the good news for most readers is the principal release format is the much more affordable uh, trade paperback original. Very cool. I'm really looking forward to that one. I, I really enjoyed the calling. So I understand there's some kind of themes and ideas that carry over a little bit into uh, this series. So. An eagle-eyed reader might be able to say, huh, you have this detail in the dark arts books. Isn't that sort of similar to this detail you have going on in the calling? And I would say, well, yeah, yeah, it is. That's very sharp of you to see that. <laughs> but I can't say they're the same series because, well, technically they're not. One is published as a standalone novel through Simon and & Schuster, and the other is going to be a new trilogy of books coming out through Tor. I'm very excited about it. I'm actually just beginning work now on book two of Dark Arts, which is called The Iron Codex. And I'm beginning my laborious process of plotting out multiple story arcs and then figuring out how to thread and weave them together. And once I figure that out, I also have to plot out book three um, because the publisher has told me that they would like to have faster turnaround on the series. They don't want to have fans wait like a year or a year and a half between books. They, they, they've asked me if they said, if there's any way I can get these books done sooner so that they can expedite the delivery of books to fans, maybe with only, you know, eight months or nine months between books instead of a year and a half, they would much prefer that. So I've been, I've been asked to prioritize the project and I'm doing my best to do so. No George R. R. Martin shenanigans for you. <laughs> nope. No, I do not have that luxury. If I sold that many books, I could take all the time I wanted. Uh, I am not at, I am not at George's level. Let's be perfectly <laughs> honest about that. <laughs> awesome. that's just your opinion <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> raw numbers dude he can sell more books in a week than i've sold in my life <laughs> but you know what he's not doing on may 6th he's not going to be in upstate new york with you guys so can you tell us a little bit about that oh i'd love to yeah may 6th i and 11 other star trek authors are going to be visiting the star trek original series set tours in ticonderoga new york so if you're anywhere near upstate New York, uh, Ticonderoga, that whole area, come on out on Saturday, May 6th. Uh, we're going to be hanging out probably on one of the sets or maybe in the front area uh, of the uh, facility. James Colley is very graciously hosting what we are calling a mini-con. Uh, it's going to be me, David R. George, Dayton Ward. I believe Kevin Delmore is going to be there. Glenn Howman, Bob Greenberger, Dave Gallanter, uh, and other Michael Jan Friedman and other names I'm sure I'm forgetting. Scott Pearson, I believe, will be uh, joining us for this. It's going to be a big event. Uh, we hope somebody shows up. Um, the basic premise is that the writers are all going to come out. We're going to tour the sets on like a little VIP tour from around 11 a.m. to 1 o'clock. And then from 1 to 6, we're going to be hanging out at the Star Trek Set Tours facility. And we're going to be meeting with fans, anybody who wants to drop by. We will be having informal chit-chats. We'll be signing books, um, signing autographs, whatever. And uh, we're just going to hang out and be accessible. And this is my chance to get my photo taken on the bridge of the classic Enterprise. So I, you know I got to do it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh 
yeah, I don't live anywhere near there. I'm in Atlanta, but I'm seriously considering coming. Hey, if you can get up there, that would be awesome. Uh, Atlanta is, you know, a great city. I've been down there once for Dragon Con, been there a couple times before that. Uh, couldn't afford to go back for Dragon Con this year, unfortunately. Financial concerns just hit me right where it lives. But uh, I'm hoping maybe to make it back to Dragon Con in 2018. That would be really awesome. And uh, let's see, I think my only other major convention appearances this year, I'm doing uh, Shore Leave in July. I will be attending ReaderCon, but I'm not a program participant. I'm just going to be a face in the crowd, so don't bother looking for me there. Uh, and I'm going to be at World Fantasy Convention in San Antonio in uh, November. And I will be at Gen Con. This is a big one. If you're going to be anywhere near the Indianapolis area in August, and you're coming to Gen Con 50, come to the Gen Con Writers Symposium. I and many other fantastic writers are going to be there talking about the art, the craft, the business of writing, everything you ever wanted to know. There's going to be panels. There's going to be workshops. There's going to be one-on-ones. There's going to be book signings. It's going to be awesome. And this is my first time at Gen Con, uh, but I'll be there alongside Aaron Rosenberg and Matt Forback and Delilah S. Dawson and many other fantastic writers. So come on out to Gen Con in Indianapolis this August if you get a chance. Well, you're definitely busy, so uh, we won't take any more of your time. So I appreciate you coming on the show, and this was a great novel. I gave it five stars on Goodreads, and that's out of five people, in case you're wondering. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's very kind of you. Here, here. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. I usually don't rate a book until after we've talked about it on the show or whatever, but... I went straight to Goodreads when I was done and hit that five stars because, wow, yeah, this book. That's is... really awesome of you, gentlemen. I mean, I know that some fans have not uh, loved the book. The one thing I'll say I'm glad about is that reaction to the book by fans so far has been polarized. What I've gotten in terms of response are either people who really love it and really got what I was going for and, and really just dig it uh, on a visceral level or people who really feel offended or betrayed by it and are angry about it. Uh, and what's interesting is that even those who are critical of it, they say it's well-written, they appreciate the artistry of it, but they really disagree with me deeply and profoundly uh, on a philosophical level or a creative level about some of the choices I've made. And the reason I feel good about that type of criticism is at least I have provoked a strong response in many ways, the most disheartening response a novelist can get or any storyteller can get in any medium is, eh, meh, whatever. If you've written a meh, whatever novel, that's really the worst because at its heart, art is about provoking an emotional reaction, provoking some reaction, getting thought out of somebody else. And if you don't accomplish that, then you haven't accomplished anything. But at least if somebody either really loves what you've done or they really hate what you've done, at either end of that spectrum, you have provoked a strong reaction. You have tapped into something powerful that either attracts or re uh, repels. And I feel good about this book if for no other reason than the response I've received to it so far has been very strong, both on the positive and the negative front. Uh, and for that, I'm, I'm very glad. 
Well, I think it's been more on the positive side of things, but maybe those who didn't like the book have listened to this discussion and have changed their mind are going to consider some of the points that you brought up. So that's why I was like uh, having these discussions and having authors on the show so we can hear the thought behind the decision making in crafting these stories. Absolutely. But if, you know, this discussion did not change any minds, that's okay too. I mean, my responsibility with the story ends at the point where I hand it off and the printer prints it. At that point, interpretation and critical evaluation belongs to the reader. And the relationship that a reader has to a story is different from that that the author has to the story. And it's not up to me to dictate to readers the type of relationship they should have to the to the work. So I accept, you know, the feedback I get. Again, I'm just really glad that the reaction I'm getting is intense, whether it's for better or for worse, whether they liked it or didn't. I'm just really pleased that it's getting an intense response. That was the goal. And I'm, I'm pleased whether fans dig it or whether they want to critique it. That's okay with me. Once they've paid for the book and they've read it, they're entitled to their informed opinion. And I encourage that. So if anyone has intense opinions, how can they get hold of you, like on social media? Well, they can find me on Twitter at David Allen Mack. That's David Allen, A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the real David Mack. I'm sorry, not the real, the David Mack, T-H-E David Mack. Uh, and then you can find me on my website at davidmack.pro. That's David Mack. .pro. Uh, and that's pretty much about it. Those are the three major places you go looking for me. The website is a great place to keep up on what books I have coming up and a great place to go and order signed copies of my books. I uh, maintain an online store and uh, you can order directly through the store if you're doing domestic orders in the U.S. International orders, uh, drop me an email and we can work something out. Uh, Twitter is a great place to see me embarrass myself. Uh, and Facebook is a great place to find out what I ate for dinner last night or what I think of my cat. <laughs> awesome. Well, we really look forward to having you on to talk about your Titan and discovery novels. Really can't wait for those. And, uh, as always, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Great talking to you guys. And I will look forward to my next visit. Man, I have to say, I loved this novel and I really loved that discussion with David Mack. You know, the, this opportunity, and I say this every time, but the opportunity to really dig deep on these novels and get at kind of the meat behind the story, it's always just a huge perk of this, of what we do here. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of talk online, and the novel hasn't been out all that long, and so it, it definitely is stirring some things up in the fan community, so I find that to be a good thing. So if a novel can get a lot of people talking, whether they like it or not, it's just really fascinating to me, and, and it's... And it's had my head spinning after I read the book, just like thinking about, hmm, what, you know, things that happen in Star Trek, were they influenced by Yuri I or, hmm, hmm, I don't know. Who really whispered the command sleep to Picard in Best of Both Worlds so that he could tell it to Data? You know, who fired the breaking thrusters of the Klingon Bird of Prey when, you know, the Kirk and them went back in time to find whales? 
all this stuff, you know, a lot of Star Trek fans might think, oh, that just, you know, that that wipes out so many accomplishments. But to me, it's just one more added kind of benefit of going back and rewatching episodes. You know, where can you pick out where Yuri I had an influence? I think we now know why Wesley was always saving the ship because Yuri I was telling him what to do. There you go. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's now a part of my official what authors hate the uh, the term head cannon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I'd love to hear what everyone else thought about this book that read it. Um, so you know, please reach out to us and let us know because, I mean, Twitter, email, whatever. Just just let us know what you think. Um, maybe we'll even read some of your comments on the next show because this book really has some interesting insight into the Star Trek universe and kind of changes some things up. So Dan. When you're not spying on our listeners through their mobile devices and TVs and microwaves, where can people find you? You know, my intentions are all good. I'm just, you know, reporting incidents that I find questionable. I'm not taking any kind of unilateral action on my own, I, I, I swear. Uh, but yeah, no, you can find all of my public postings on facebook.com slash Productions. And I mean, those are wide open. You don't even have to spy to get those. You can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. And Bruce, when you're not putting tape over everything in your room that you think might even possibly be a camera, where can we find you? My wife does a lot of the taping around here because <laughs> that really <laughs> is happening. <laughs> and my kids are too, with little flowers, stickers. It's kind of funny. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can also find me in the Babel Conference on Facebook. That's our private Trek FM listeners group on Facebook. So if you search for the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, you can find us in there talking about this topic and other things you've heard on Trek FM. And if you want to hear me talk Star Wars, you can hear that on the Star Wars Report podcast with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman, and we'll be at Star Wars Celebration this coming week. So we have a lot of good information coming out of that. So tune in for that. Now, if anybody is listening to the show, you obviously found us somewhere online or through some kind of podcast app. So we are available on Apple, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, all these places, RSS links, and of course on Trek.fm. So continue listening, subscribe, give us some reviews on iTunes that helps listeners find us, and also support the network and the show through Patreon.com. You can go to Patreon.com slash TrekFM. And you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels. And if you donate a certain amount, you can even be associate producer of Literary Treks, just like our buddies Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shea Matala, who support the Trek FM network. And being a associate producer here on Trek FM is great support to us on here on Literary Treks. So we're just going to end things there, and we want to thank you all for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.